I've had so many people ask me, I mean, like thousands, uh, when am I going to get over this? When am I going to get through this? And I listen, I don't say it as quickly as this, but for the sake of this limited time in the podcast, uh, I, I say, you don't get over it. You grow into it. Mm. You don't get through it. You learn to carry it differently. We should carry all of our life experiences, everything. Memory plays a huge role here. And what at one time might be a haunting and horrible memory can over time, if you're attentive and open to the spirit of God, become very different over time. But you don't get over it. You grow into it and you learn to carry it differently and discover that by the grace of God, your soul's capacity to carry it grows. Mm -hmm. And then you also discover you're able to carry the losses and sorrows of other people too. Welcome to the podcast of the Kirby Lang Center for Public Theology in Cambridge. Public theology is about how the very good news of Jesus relates to all of life. Our podcast is titled Christianity for the Everyday, dispatches from and for our daily lives. We like to quote Gerard Manley Hopkins' statement that Christ plays in 10,000 places. In our podcast, we aim to find those myriad ways in which Christ plays in our lives so that we can play alongside him. Join our team and invited guests as we explore Christianity and the everyday, from the most mundane aspects of our lives with their hidden glory to geopolitical issues that impact upon them. Christianity for the Everyday is a podcast of the Kirby Lang Center for Public Theology in Cambridge. So you can learn more about our work and our resources by visiting our site, kirbylangcenter.co.uk, and we'll link that in the show notes. And you can join the conversation by heading over to our Facebook group. Really excited today to sit down. We counted an honor to sit with Jerry Sitzer. He's the, the author of a Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss, amongst some other books. Um, the dispatches from his own day, daily life come to us in that book in a really profound way. And we're excited to have him on the show to touch on that and formation, spirituality, um, uh, ranging topics. And by we, I don't mean the royal we, but myself and fellow panelists, Bruce and Craig, who will now intro themselves Let's go ahead and start with you, Bruce, and then we'll kick it over to Craig. Yeah, so I'm Bruce Ashford, and I'm a senior fellow in public theology here at the uh, Kirby Lang Center for Public Theology. And uh, my specific interests lie at the intersection of Christian faith and higher ed, Christian faith and politics, and Christian faith and spirituality. Uh, and I'm Craig Bartholomew. I'm the director of the Kirby Lang Center for Public Theology in Cambridge. And, and really, I'm particularly delighted that we've got Jerry with us today. And uh, Jason, are you going to ask Jerry to introduce himself? Yes, please. 
All right. I am uh, recently retired as a professor of theology at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. And uh, in that capacity, I've not only done a lot of work on campus, but also um, on university campuses and in churches across the United States and actually in several other parts of the world. So I have done uh, a good bit of traveling over the years. My, my, my deep sense of calling, uh, that is vocation, is to be a bridge between the academy and the church. So I'm in somewhat of a translator. I want to take the rich heritage of Christian learning, well, and secular learning for that matter too, over the centuries, and create the kind of bridge that makes that, that thought, which seems um, elitist and distant and esoteric, uh, to make that uh, accessible and understandable to ordinary people. I operate under the assumption that there are a whole lot of smart people out there, but there's just smart in different ways. Mm -hmm. I had a neighbor who lived across the street from us several years ago, and he was a genius at mechanic. I mean, he could fix anything. And mm -hmm. I thought, okay, so I'm good at books. He's good at mechanical kinds of things. He's just as smart as I am. So we have academics need to be careful. We don't think we're the only smart people in the world because we're not at all. And uh, so my goal is to try to bridge that gap between the academy and the church in my writing, in my speaking, and really in my living. I think the reason why uh, you uh, folks are interested in me is because of uh, one of the books I've written nine, but one of them that's been by far the, the bestseller. It's been translated into 20 languages. And I call this book a theological memoir. My model was Augustine's Confessions. Mm. Now I'll be quick to add that Augustine did something that none of the rest of us will ever do. My book will not last 1600 years in his hands <laughs> because he's sort of the A team and I'm more like the D squad or E squad. But having said that, I wanted to figure out how to reflect on my own life experience in a way that had theological richness and integrity to it, a theological memoir. And that's what I did uh, after a careful reflection on a huge loss that I suffered way back in 1991. Uh, my children, uh, four of them, and my wife and I were on a, a homeschooling field trip. My mother joined us for the weekend. She's from the other part of the state. And a drunk driver hit us returning from this field trip, going about 85 miles an hour. And when the dust cleared, uh, though all of us were injured, I lost my wife, uh, Linda. She was then 42. And my four-year-old, Dinah Jane, and my mother, uh, uh, who was 75 at the time, Grace. Uh, I had three children survive, Catherine, who was eight, David, who was six, and John Charles, who was two. Well, needless to say, that was a, a large kind of experience. Uh, mm. And it set me um, back a lot. I mean, it was a really, really hard thing. I'll just say that right away. Mm. And it was emotionally uh, tumultuous for me. It took a long time to sort it out, not only intellectually, but emotionally. But eventually I had friends prevail on me who said, you need to put this to writing. Your ideas are fresh and you're skilled in this area, and it's your obligation to the larger Christian public uh, to do this. And so that set me on that particular journey, this mm -hmm. theological memoir. Uh, Jason mentioned it, A Grace Disguised. Mm -hmm. And it's been out now for 25 years. In fact, the 25th anniversary edition just came out. 
And it has two new chapters that reflect on what trauma and loss look like after 25 years or 30 years. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we're, we're delighted to, to be with you on the, the 25th anniversary of the book. So, uh, I mean, on a light note, I always say to people, I hope I can write a book like City of God, which has never gone out of print. <laughs> but, yeah. So, you know, it's unlikely that, that we're going to do that. But I do. Uh, so if it's any encouragement, Jerry, I, I tell people that uh, A Grace Disguised, I think, is the most significant book in this area since C.S. Lewis's reflections on his own loss, you know. Yeah. So it, it does seem to me a, a profound and a, a very, very uh, important book. And I wondered, you know, as you, I mean, in the book, as you reflect on the journey and as you look back now, are there landmarks that you can identify in the process of living through that intellectually, emotionally, I mean, in every way, because it's such a colossal uh, event in a person's life. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll um, comment on that in several ways, Craig. It's a, a great question. Actually, I've been interviewed about this book many, many times, and that mm. is a new question, which I appreciate a great deal. It's a very thoughtful question. Um, I, the most important thing I think I did is create my own landmarks by being attentive to my soul and to the experience. Uh, Augustine, speaking of Augustine, Augustine um, talks about um, attentiveness in his chapter on memory in the Confessions. And I love what he says there. He actually makes an argument um, that the past and future don't really exist. Only the present exists. Now we experience the past as a consequence in the presence, in the present. Um, and as a memory, and we experience the future as a hope and an expectation, but the present is all we have. And the duty we owe to the present from a Christian perspective is to be attentive to it. What is God doing? What is happening to me? What does this mean in the larger landscape of life? How can I reflect on this biblically in a way that's authentic? So I love that quality, I, I'm even going to say that virtue, it's a kind of intellectual virtue of attentiveness. Now, there are a couple of things I did, Craig, along the way. I tried to pay attention to what was happening in my own soul. I just kind of watched myself. Uh, one of the things I learned is the dreams that I had, and I, mm. I put some of those dreams to writing, and I can't tell you the reader response just to those dreams alone. Uh, one dream is uh, of of a, of a family life in a huge backyard. And in the middle of this backyard is a huge oak tree, 100 years old, massive tree. And we did life under that tree. There were swings, we had picnics and benches, and, and it, it became a metaphor for the, for the beauty of a simple family life. The, mm. uh, the tree becomes diseased and it's cut down. So every time I look into that backyard, I see this gigantic empty space that used to be occupied by this beautiful tree. And it's, it's a haunting space, a haunting mm -hmm. kind of emptiness. And uh, <clears throat> over time, I wake up, by the way, from that dream with that empty space. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And of course, that became a metaphor for exactly what my experience was, this stripping mm. away of life, this profound vacuum of nothingness that existed there. Uh, but upon careful reflection, I thought, wait a minute, rather than try to plant a new tree, let the stump remain. Because mm. that's a metaphor for a past that was lost. And the memory of that past is significance. Instead, plant around it. Flowers, mm. bushes, grass, a new bench that you build. The kinds of things so that you're remembering what is lost and you're investing in what could be. And uh, so that was one powerful dream for me that gave me a cue as to where, what happened to me and where I needed to head. Here's another one. I was, I'm chasing after a, uh, a setting sun, frantic and exhausted and terrified because I want to stay in its fiery warmth. This mm. setting sun becomes a metaphor for, again, the light I had been living in and had lost, and I didn't want to let it go. Mm. Finally, I realized the sun's going to beat me to the horizon, and I stop exhausted, breathing deeply, and watch it as it sinks below the horizon. And then I look over my shoulder with a sense of dread at the darkness that's sweeping over me, and I wake up. And I'll tell you, that time in waking up, there was a kind of holy terror in the depths mm. of my soul. I really thought existentially, I would be living in darkness for the rest of my life. I think mm. you know what I'm talking about. It's not just a thought. Mm. My whole body was feeling this. Well, I talked to my sister a few days later. She's a very good friend of mine. And she said, you know, Jerry, this might be a cue uh, for you. Uh, as long as you're running west to try to stay in a sun mm. that's beating your horizon, um, you're actually, if you continue heading west to chase after it, you're going to be in the darkness all the longer. But if you turn into the darkness east and plunge into it, all the sooner will you come to the sunrise. Mm. Well, then somebody sent me a poem by John Donne. And in this particular course, you've heard of him, this great uh, Anglican mm. poet. And in, in one poem, he talks about the difference between east and west on a map and east and west on a globe. On a map, the farther west you go, the farther you are from the east. But in a globe, if you follow west or east around, you come to the west. In other words, they meet. Hmm. And again, that gave me a cue. If you have the courage to plunge into the darkness, learning what you need to, feeling what you need to, experiencing what you need to, being attentive to it, all the sooner will you come to the sunrise. Now, those are two of a number of dreams hmm. that came my way that I the Holy Spirit really said to be pay attention to these. They're going to hurt deeply, but mm. they're going to give you cues as to what to do. So that's the first thing I want to say. Um, mm. The second thing I want to say is that I discovered how significant having a deep root system is. Now, I had the luxury, Craig, of being 41 years old and being a 20-year-old Christian when this accident occurred. I became a Christian kind of a traditional evangelical conversion when I was 20. Hmm. And uh, I fell into the influence of some older university guys when I was a young man. And they gave me the impression that it was simply the norm of Christianity to memorize scripture. <laughs> Little did hmm. I know how wrong they were. But <laughs> I, I took their uh, uh, advice as if it were simply what new Christians did. 
and I began to memorize scripture and that sunk deep into my soul. Mm. Um, I can't tell you what that did for me after the accident. Now, again, it didn't solve any of my problems. I don't mm. want the impression that I felt less or that mm. I could handle this more easily. Mm. It was a profoundly wounding experience for me. Mm. Uh, it was like a winter storm that just would had an unrelenting quality to it. But my root system was still there as it is in wintertime, never goes away. It might become dormant for a while and slow down, but the root system is what is going to allow the green to sprout up again in the spring. And I cannot tell you, I cannot tell you how grateful I am for the root system that had the chance to grow deep when it didn't have to. Yeah. In other words, I was preparing for this experience long before I knew the experience would come my way and long before I could ever have imagined that such a thing would happen. Jerry, and that's why the practice, I was just going to say, that's why the practice of, of the spiritual disciplines of and reflection of prayer and scripture study and so on, yeah, solitude. All those things that have been with us in the Christian tradition, really from the very beginning. I mean, you can find evidence of this in early Christian writings right after the apostolic period, this rich, rich tradition of practice that's rooted in grace. Hmm. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have some influences in my life that urged this in a very gracious way, not in uh, a legalistic way. And that root system proved to be reliable and durable uh, after mm -hmm. I suffered that catastrophic loss. Yeah, so Jerry, you mentioned memorizing scripture. And one of the questions I wondered for you, even someone listening right now, what, what passage or biblical truth was one that you would return to and actually offer you comfort? Because like, if you think about it, the New Testament seems to be mainly about Jew and Gentile relationship at the highest level, right? So what, <laughs> what, what did you sink your teeth into that really, that even listeners now could, could they themselves could familiarize them with and just, and let that be truth and soak in it? Yeah, inter internalize. Uh, well, boy, there are a lot of passages. I think overall, I turned to the Psalms a lot. I probably had about 30 Psalms memorized by then. Uh, by the way, uh, my wife and I have a ritual. I, I remarried, by the way, 12 years ago after 20, 20 years of widowhood. And uh, I married just a lovely woman I'd known for many years. She actually knew my first wife and her two daughters were best friends with my two sons. So a very unusual set of circumstances there. And every night when we go to bed, uh, we have a liturgy we follow. Mornings too, mornings and evenings together. And in the evening, I always recite a psalm. And then we say some prayers for people in need and then always conclude with the Lord's prayer. It's the last thing we do before we turn the lead out and go to bed. And I tried to memorize early on a range of Psalms that touch a range of human emotion, but, but explore those emotions from a theologically rich divine kind of perspective. So, um, oh, there are some harsh Psalms. Uh, Psalm mm. 39, I'm actually just finishing memorizing right now. I wasn't very familiar with that hymn or that psalm, and it's, it's profound. Mm. Um, 
Uh, Lord, let me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. Mm-hmm. It's just profound. Or Psalm 90 is rich the same way. Lord, teach me to number my days that I may get a heart of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, psalm 139 was the first psalm I memorized as a new Christian. And it transformed my life. That psalm inhabits my soul. Wow. It's the only way I could put it. It's so alive in me wow. that it has its own kind of independent, breathing, living existence inside me. Wow. Uh, psalm 103, Psalm 16 was my wife's favorite psalm, my first and my second wife. Coincidentally, <laughs> they both latched on to Psalm 16 as kind of their psalms. Mm. And that's a beautiful uh, uh, psalm. Um, mm. And it's a, a lighter psalm. It's got more air to it. It's not as heavy. So I, I spent, uh, Jason, I spent about um, a year reading the Psalms very slowly and putting asterisk by those that I thought would be good for me to memorize. And then I went back and started to memorize them. And I had about 30 that I uh, landed on that had a range, again, a range of topics, a range of emotions, a range of perspectives that was really useful to me. Uh, John's, John 15 meant the world to me during that period. Uh, Romans 8, 28 to 39, no surprise there, kind of a classic passage on this. Actually, another one of my favorite passages, believe it or not, is 2 Corinthians 3. Mm-hmm. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed to his likeness from one degree of glory for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. I mean, it's beautiful. So anyway, uh, over the years, I would just talk to people, read the Bible, uh, jot down the ones that I thought were most important to me. Interestingly enough, I want to make a comment about memorization and meditation. Uh, It's becoming a lost art. And the reason why is because we have information now at our fingertips. Mm. We we delude ourselves into thinking because we have the Bible on our phone, we don't need it in our hearts. Mm. And that's a huge mistake we're making here. Because when you go through some kind of uh, tragic experience, the Bible on your phone is not going to do a lot of good for you. It's got to be internalized. And the art of memorization is being lost. I still remember some poems I memorized when I was an elementary school kid. Well, nobody does that anymore. That's kind of old fashioned. But the memory is an important, not the only, but it's it's an important element in becoming an educated person. Um, So that we don't just memorize access codes. We actually memorize poems and passages, biblical and otherwise. And we create these deep neural pathways down which rivers can flow. I I liken, I I have two metaphors that I use here, uh, Jason, that are important to me. Um, The first is I want to be a, I want my brain to be a Grand Canyon, not a river delta. Mm. Mm. I want deep neural pathways. I want to have some texts become my text. Uh, biblical mm. and otherwise, like Augustine's Confessions, for example, um, or Luther's Freedom of the Christian, or Julian of Norwich's Showings, and so on. Mm. Mm. Um, and obviously, biblical texts and so on, certain poems, certain works of art, certain pieces of music. Uh, I mean, I'll tell you this much um, 
there are several um, requiems that literally kept me alive after the accident. I bet I, bet I listened to, to uh, Foray's uh, requiem a hundred times. Wow. It, it, it be- gave me a musical language that just picked me up and carried me. Wow. So this is all these deep neural pathways that you create that work themselves into the soul. The other image I like is I, I, want, I want my brain to have open sky. I don't want it to always be under a cloud. Mm-hmm. Means I want to have my, I want to give my brain room to let it roam and think and dream and create and not, and not be too crowded with noise and words and podcasts. Sorry to say. And <laughs> we spend so much time just skipping from one thing to the next and our brains mm-hmm. are overstimulated. And they need space. They need open sky. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Grand Canyon and the open sky are the two metaphors that give me cues about the kind of human being and, and intellectual I, I, I truly want to be. Mm-hmm. Can, I, uh, can I just follow up on that, Terry? So, I mean, I, I can see, uh, although... Neither you nor I love podcasts, although I'm (laughs) keen on this podcast, but I I don't listen to many. But uh, this is so rich. Uh, You know, the and so uh, the landmarks that you identified were attentiveness and the deep root system. And uh, I imagine having read your book and from, you know, my own and other experience that you know, Jason asked, okay, you know, what scriptures do you really sort of uh, uh, dig into? But when you go through an experience like that, I imagine it was more that your root system held. And uh, rather than, uh, and I wonder, you know, just so in terms of those landmarks, I think the thing that really struck me powerfully in your book was that initially, if I remember correctly, one runs away from the darkness. Mm-hmm. And then there came a moment where you turn and you surrender to the darkness. But I think you say uh, one has no idea where this will take you. You're right. Yeah. So during all of that, I mean, is there a time where the attentiveness emerges? Because it's hard to be terribly attentive or to be meditating on scripture when you don't know where this is going. Oh, yeah. No, you're exactly right, Craig. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm describing a kind of rationality that makes more sense in retrospect than it did when I was in it. Yeah, okay. As we all know, there things look one way when you look back on them. They look very different when you're in them. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I. I have the luxury of being able to look back now on 30 mm. years. Mm. I didn't have that luxury when I was in it, when, when the kind of existential um, uh, pain was so overwhelming, it, it suffocated me. Mm. I could hardly breathe. It mm. was so overwhelming. And I had three kids to raise. I mean, I, I had a busy life. They, I think, probably kept me alive, to tell you the truth. Mm. And uh, sometimes... All you can do is just live in that darkness. Actually, it was kind of interesting. I read uh, William Styron's book, Darkness Invisible. Uh, it's a brief memoir on his uh, clinical depression. It's terrifying to read. 
Mm. Honestly, it's not for the faint of heart because it is so good with words. Wow. And he is able to describe what it's like to walk into darkness when all there is, is darkness. Mm. It's that deep pit that you enter into where you think you are alone and you are in darkness and you will be there for the rest of your life. Mm. There's a kind of terror there that really transcends language altogether. It, it, you just mm. can't get to it. But again, then you listen to Psalm 139, whither shall I go from thy spirit and whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there thy hand shall lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say light, let only darkness cover me and the light among me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to thee. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light to thee. Now, I didn't, I didn't think that rationally. I mean, it wasn't like, <laughs> oh, let's just meditate on Psalm 139 for a while. Wow. But it was still there somewhere. Mm. Mm. And maybe that's the best we can hope for. It was still there somewhere in some little back closet of my, my being. Mm. That truth, even as I lived in the darkness... I want to uh, take it in a slightly different direction, Craig, and, and talk again. This is retrospect now. This is looking back. Mm. It is that we humans have an amazing capacity in our souls to be able to feel and think more than one thing at the same time. In other words, to learn to live in tensions. Mm. So as a parent, now as a grandparent, I have 11 grandchildren. I mean, uh, my grandchildren drive me crazy and I have absolute delight in them all the time. (laughs) Uh, I I have a memory that comes to mind. It's a recent one, a year and a half ago. I, uh, I was uh, having, uh, I got up early, made a cup of coffee for me. And that's what gets my wife out of bed in the morning. And then I went out to get the paper that tells you my age. I still get a of actual paper in the mailbox. Good for you. Good for you. Thank you. And uh, I, I spotted Venus in the early morning sky in all its glory. I mean, it, it was so bright and so big. It looked like a small moon. It was, it was stunning. And I just stared at it. I gazed at it for a while. The only light in the morning sky uh, from, from the stars and planets, you know. And went in, sat down, sipped on coffee and prayed. But that, that image, that vision of Venus stayed with me. In that afternoon, I got a call from my sister, my great nephew, who had started Whitworth that fall to play football, got a pain in his leg. They took him for an MRI. They took him to the Children's Hospital in Seattle. Turned out he had osteosarcoma. Within a month, he lost his leg, and I did his memorial service this past February. Oh, my goodness. And in one day, one day, those two extraordinary circumstances. Now, what do you do with that? It's the nature of children to be all of one thing or another. So when they're unhappy, they are really, truly, completely unhappy. Mm. Five minutes later, they're gleeful again. Mm. But we adults have the capacity to carry both joy and sorrow in our souls at the same time. 
Hmm. And it's, it's the kind of experience that I had and that ultimately everyone has that force us to begin to recognize the divine nature of our own being because we're made in the image of God. Now that nature is broken and hmm. flawed and deeply sinful, but by the regenerative and redemptive work of God through Jesus Christ, that soul can be repaired and begin to be restored. And one of the things you discover is your capacity for more than one thing at a time. That is your capacity for deep pleasure in the glory of life and a piece of music or a poem or a novel or a, or a child playing in, on a playground and, uh, and so on. And at the same time, the deep suffering and sorrow that exists in the world. And we're able to do both, hmm. but it takes time to get there. And unfortunately, the only way you get there is through human experience. And then the operation of the spirit of God on the soul it has to be both. You're hmm. not born with those capacities any more than you're born with the capacity to speak a language. You're, no, you're born with the ability to speak a language. You have the capacity. You don't have the ability. Hmm. Hmm. Well, Jerry, um, you know, I, I wanted to go back to uh, one of your initial comments. You talked about a dream that you had uh, and, you know, it, there was a garden in the dream. So it's kind of a garden metaphor. But you've also in other writings and, uh, you know, other spiritual directors and spiritualists have used the metaphor of a path. Um, and in my mind, um, or a pilgrimage. Uh, that kind of ties together uh, spirituality, but also what you've written on pain. That, uh, you know, a pilgrimage is unlike a business trip. Uh -huh. My experience of a, a business trip, uh, you know, you make a plan, you get on the plane, you go, you take care of business, you come home. It's very neatly packaged, very few surprises, maybe no surprises. But in a pilgrimage, you know, you have a destination. You're not exactly sure how you're going to get there. There's setbacks, there's diversions. And uh, when you mentioned the Psalms, I mean, that reminds me of uh, the psalmist. You know, I feel like he's what he's often saying to God is, you know, I'm on the path, the pilgrimage of righteousness and wisdom rather than the pilgrimage of sin and folly. Why are there so many setbacks and why are they so devastating? And where are you, God? And, uh, and it also ties into what you said about uh, being able. I love what you said about living in intention. You know, the, in the middle of, uh, you know, a, a great setback in life or great pain, our root system stays. We, we believe in the same God we believed in, but we don't always feel that way. At least that's my experience. The feelings don't necessarily match. Yep. You know, would you be willing to reflect on uh, spirituality as a pilgrimage uh, based on some of your more recent writings and uh, maybe even connect that to pain? Well, I love, I love the uh, image of either a pilgrimage or a pathway. Uh, of course, we're used to highways today. Uh, <laughs> once you're on the highway, you have to stay on the highway, the freeway that is. Uh, limited access, you have to wait five or 10 miles before you can get off. Um, you don't sightsee on a highway. Um, you can maybe sightsee if you're driving on a, a, a country road, even if it's paved. In the state of Washington, there are two good ways to get from one side of the state to the other, Interstate 90. And I avoid that 
whenever I can in Highway 2. When you drive along Highway 2, there are no fences, only two lanes. The traffic is not nearly as heavy. Uh, you're driving by all these beautiful wheat fields, all these open plains, big sky. There it is. It's the big sky and the loneliness, the isolation of it all. So I like, I like the, those images of diversion and uh, wandering off and, and delaying somewhere because you've discovered something that's rich and beautiful. You visit a cathedral if you're on a pilgrimage or a monastery or some other kind of site that's beautiful to you. And uh, th that connotes something very, very different. Uh, the pathway, you know where you're going, but you can stop and gaze or you, um, you find a log and sit down and, 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 and eat a snack. It just feels very different. And of course, that is a great metaphor for how we should live our lives. And it's a great metaphor, especially when we uh, have to make peace with the huge losses we've faced in our life. There are no shortcuts. Um, there's no freeway to go over. This is a pathway. It's full of ups and downs. It's difficult. It's grueling. At times, it's beautiful. And at times, it is, oh boy, it's the valley of the shadow of, of death. It's both. A much, much better metaphor, in, in my opinion. I, I like that a lot, uh, Bruce. Yeah. And then you, again, you take time, you pay attention. I, I, uh, I've had so many people ask me, I mean, like thousands, uh, when am I going to get over this? When am I going to get through this? And I listen, I don't say it as quickly as this, but for the sake of this limited time in the podcast, uh, I, I say, you don't get over it. You grow into it. Mm. You don't get through it. You learn to carry it differently. We should carry all of our life experiences, everything. Memory plays a huge role here. And what at one time might be a haunting and horrible memory can over time, if you're attentive and open to the spirit of God, become very different over time. But you don't get over it. You grow into it and you learn to carry it differently and discover that by the grace of God, your soul's capacity to carry it grows. Mm -hmm. And then you also discover you're able to carry the losses and sorrows of other people too. And that's kind of our job, isn't it? I mean, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn and they should be comforted. It's not past tense. Blessed are those who once mourned, but then figured it out and got over it or got through it. Mm. Oh, no. Mourning should be a lifestyle for us, but not at the exclusion of joy. You know, just one quick follow-up question. When I hear you talk, you know, I this podcast, which were a five-hour episode. Um, you know, I, I think in the middle of some of my uh, pain, I've you know I've been reminded that that you know Christ Jesus bore within Himself the greatest injustice, you know, mm -hmm. that's ever been perpetrated. Mm -hmm. And yet, at the at the same time that military and religious and and, and uh, political leaders were colluding to, to, to kill him. And he was experiencing that he, you know, God, the Trinity, we could say was colluding to save the world. 
Yeah. So I just, you know, the, 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 with Christ being at the center of things, how has that been an anchor for you? Cause you, what triggered that is you, you mentioned, and it's really true. You don't ever really get past or beyond, you, you know, the, the pain that you've been through. It just, I mean, we carry it. It's part of who we are. Yeah. And so, I mean, for you, how, how would you relate that directly to the, you know, to our, to the savior? Well, I'm going to actually go back to what Craig uh, um, mentioned at the beginning, uh, the city of God. And the city of God has actually given me a a really helpful cue here, uh, Bruce. Um, There are two ways to read that story. Uh, One way is the Roman way. Um, Rome got its way. They took this troublemaker and made short work of him after only three uh, public um, year, three years of public ministry and uh, crucified him outside the city gates in a brutal form of execution. He became a kind of lesson uh, to anybody who was thinking of rebelling and, uh, and ended the story right there. Um, this, is, this is the what Augustine called the, it's the perspective of the city of man. History as we understand it, only from our own earthly perspective. In that case, it's all about who wins, who's got the bigger gun, uh, the longer sword, the bigger army, uh, the more resources to be able to get their way. Uh, But as you know, Bruce, there's a whole other story going on at the same time. And it's the story of the world's redemption happening in the far reaches of the Roman Empire uh, uh, through the work of a Galilean whose whole life would have easily been forgotten if it were not what happened three days later when he was not resuscitated only to die again. He was resurrected, defeating sin and death and hell in itself. Both things are happening at the same time. I heard somebody explain Augustine's understanding of history this way. There's one stage There's one cast of characters, there's one set of props, and two stories going on at the same time. Mm. Two plays on the same stage at the same time involving the same characters. Now, with our earthly eyes, we train our eyes on the obvious story. It's the story that, that powerful people want us to see and to submit to. It's Augustus's story. It's the story of his parties in Rome, of all the intrigues, of all the pomp and circumstance. It's the story of Augustus's great accomplishments, which he was very quick to be able to describe and, and uh, you know, in, in, in code and, and set in, in, in print on columns, on marble columns. Mm-hmm. And then there's this other story going on at the same time. Augustine, Augustus didn't even realize it was happening. I mean, he makes a decision way off in another part of the empire and sets in motion what became the birth and life and death of Jesus Christ. And he had no idea what was happening. Hmm. So, I mean, I want to I want to live in the tension, Bruce, of both of those stories at the same time in my own life. One is a story of terrible loss. And, and the fact is that loss, I can never recover. I can never reclaim it. 
they're all gone. And our story would have looked very different if my wife and my daughter and my mother had not died. Mm. But at the same time, there was another story going on. Mm. Uh, Same character, same props, same stage. And it's the quieter story of God's redemptive work in the world. And I think we have to learn to live kind of in both stories. But the second story require, requires the eyes of faith to see and hope. Beautiful answer. Thank you. Now, you know, in Ephesians, Paul prays about the, that the eyes of our heart. You know, he, he has this metaphor. And I think the thing that strikes me in my own experience, but in so much of our experience is, finding the way to see the world truly, mm-hmm. you know? So, and it seems to me, I mean, I like your stage metaphor, but I think, you know, when one is seen truly, uh, the, the loss also looks different. Yes, it does. You know, so, so I think, and which in a way, so I understand, you know, that we, we live with a, the tension, the unanswered, the mystery. But, uh, you know, and you know, I wondered, so so our time is sort of going on. So just, just to circle back to the dream with uh, the tree and the emptiness, and I can sort of hear my spiritual director speaking and saying, Craig, you need to enter the emptiness. Yeah, yeah. Is that, is that a similar metaphor to surrendering to the darkness? I think so. Uh, we do it with a heart of faith, obviously. Yeah. Uh, or, we come, or we become blazing existentialists here, you know, and I, I, mm. I'm not sure that's a Christian view of reality. But yes, I think mm. we have to give ourselves to the circumstances uh, that, we, uh, mm. that we face at any given moment. Uh, again, I don't, I don't whitewash this. This is not... No. A, a happy story in that sense at all. Interesting, Craig, I'm going to mention this. I I had a conversation with two of my three kids who live in Spokane. They moved back. I have one son in in, uh, Seattle and we went out for lunch at the 30th anniversary of the accident. We always observe it somehow that day. Hmm. And uh, I, I, for the first time in my life, I asked the two of them, Catherine is now 39, David is 37. Uh, They're married. They have kids. I said, how do you feel about that the book I wrote, A Grace Disguised. You were too young for me to ask your opinion back then. But how do you feel about this? And both of them smiled and said, well, it doesn't affect us that much, dad. I mean, we just live life. And we know you as dad and Baba, grandpa, and you you worked out your life as a university professor. You weren't jetting around the world. So, I mean, every once in a while, we'd be somewhere and they'd hear the name Sitzer and they would say, oh, are you, do you know mm. Jerry? Oh, yeah, I'm his son, daughter. That, that happened on occasion somewhere in the United States. Mm. But for the most part, they said it hasn't really touched us very much. But then my son, David, kind of went on a riff and he said, you know, it's interesting, Dad. I think about mom every day. I think about what it would be like to have her here and have our life as it was before. But then he smiled and said, I also like my life as it is now, and I can't have it both ways. Mm. Mm. 
Would I have married who I did? Would I have gone to Whitworth? Would we have moved? Most likely. Mm. I mean, everything would have changed. Everything would have changed had the accident not occurred. Mm. And he lives in this tension of lamenting, of mourning the loss of what was, but recognizing all the gifts that have come to him as a result of the accident itself. Mm. I mean, as I say in A Grace Disguise, one of the bitter ironies is that I would like my wife to be Mm. present, to enjoy all the things that happen in our lives because she's absent. Mm. And I can't obviously, again, have it both ways. In the end, you have to choose life. Mm. And and part of that life, Craig, is the darkness. But it's not all of it. No, no. So it's seeing, again, seeing the darkness in a, from a different standpoint. Reality. As abstract as that sounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, Jerry, could I ask uh, Jason, if you're happy for me to, just uh, because time is hurtling on it, and clearly... We'll have to do another podcast with you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so th- this has, has, I think, affected your whole life. It's affected your academic work, and it's affected, I think, uh, a deep uh, uh, entry into the practices of spirituality. And I think w- what I found so encouraging about your landmarks is, you know, there's a tendency... I mean, as an evangelical, we we don't have sort of huge resources for spirituality. So we often go looking elsewhere, which I think is quite understandable. Mm. But then one of my concerns is that uh, uh, quite a lot of spirituality seems detached from Scripture. Mm. So it was just a a question about, you, you know, your more recent work on spirituality and and authors and practices that you would recommend and then if if you could bring it to a conclusion as uh, you know you i think you've said you're a public theologian we're a center for public theology we want to do the highest level work academically but in community and out of a very deep spirituality What, what should our priorities be? Well, you, you already named it, Craig. It, you need to be, we need to be deeply rooted in a biblical worldview in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. This is God's final word to us. And uh, it, it becomes the kind of filter by which we evaluate everything else that we encounter and read and discover along the way. I feel like the church fathers, for the most part, did that pretty well. I mean, they borrowed from Plato, some of the medieval theologians borrowed extensively from Aristotle, but they'd always come up short and reject where that line of thinking would logically go if it were not subjected to a Christian view of reality. Mm. And uh, we're not so good, at least in the American context of doing that. So we turn Christianity into a prosperity gospel or Christian nationalism or... Mm. Uh, you know, kind of a modernist uh, or p- political liberation. You know, we we, we actually uh, don't demonstrate the same kind of rigor that some of these early church fathers did, like 
Gregory of Nazianzus and Basil of Caesarea and Chrysostom and Augustine and all the rest. They weren't perfect, obviously. So scripture has to be absolutely central to everything we do. But I also think Christians are smart if they're good scavengers and they kind of pick up things along the way. Globally, globally and historically. So, you know, you read the Desert Fathers. I love them. I've read them a lot and I've actually published on them. And there are parts of them that are deeply disturbing. Mm. They're half crazy some of the time. Although, <laughs> no, although it's interesting that they know when they're crazy and they will mock themselves. So, I, I mean, here's an example. True fasting is eating just a little less than what you want. Mm. Now, that's brilliant. And that's from the Desert Fathers. So, you know, they would go into these extremes a following a fasting regimen. And yet one of the masters would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. True fasting is not that extreme. It's simply eating a little less than what you want. You find those gems all through it. So first of all, they're self-aware of their own excesses. And secondly, they really force us to think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the wilderness of life. Hmm. Wilderness in their case, literal, in our case is a metaphor. Uh, but where it's stripped and it's bare and it's barren and it's uh, lonely and it's, and it's cold and it's bleak. And that's where all of us have to live life some of the time. Mm. And they underscore the, um, the, the value of recognizing struggle as an essential feature in the spiritual life. That it's a sign of health. Struggle mm. is good for the soul, Abba Antony put it. Struggle is good for the soul. And we all know this through our earthly experience. So I just like scavenging, but then subjecting it to a kind of biblical understanding of life and, and doing some cherry picking. Um, so we don't, we don't just kind of jump in with both feet when there are good parts, but unhealthy parts. That would be true of the Desert Fathers. It would be true of monasticism. It would be true in the spiritual spirituality of the icon and on and on all the, the richness that we have inherited in the Christian tradition that all has flaws with it. But then again, we do too. Yeah. So good. We've been um, joined today with Jerry Sitzer, author of A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss. <clears throat> Um, we thank you for sharing your dispatches and it, it's especially a treat to, you know, knowing that um, this occurred 30 years ago in the book now 20, 25 years. So it's getting that retrospect is, was brilliant. We're excited to um, announce that we're going to be giving away two copies of the book. And our hope is that two copies of this book would land with, um, we're going to send them both to one person is what we're going to do. So um, please head over to our Facebook page. Um, the Kirby Lang Center for Public Theology in Cambridge, and just just add, add us there, and maybe just drop a comment somewhere of who who you will give your copy to, and we would hope that you would read it in tandem, and and uh, as is true of of Sitzer as well as C.S. Lewis said, a good book will help you to put the book down and pick up the Bible, and we definitely see that from your work. So thank you very much. Um, as we close out, is there any other um, books or projects that you have um, on the horizon? Well, I just, uh, two years ago, my book, Resilient Faith, How the Early Christian, in quotes, third way changed the world, 
it's really a study in the durability and the brilliance of that early Christian movement against all odds. They grew a movement for 270 years under suspicion and uh, often opposition. I think there's a lot for us to learn. Now, I want to write a, a fairly short book on how we carry the memory of Christendom with us and how that's beginning to backfire for Western Christians. I don't demonize Christendom. Cambridge is a product of Christendom. Mm. I mean, education, we're, I think we're failing in the project of higher ed right now, but the, 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 uh, the origin of higher ed in my mind is a great example of, of, the, of the genius of Christendom. But there are, down, down, there are darknesses in Christendom mm. too. Coercion, use of violence, for example, mm. abuse of power. And we're, we're leaving behind the best parts of it, and we're carrying forward the worst parts of it. <laughs> we need to do some really careful scrutiny with kind of the history of Christendom and the, the memory that we carry of it and how we go forward in what I'd call a post-Christendom phase of history. Mm. And one reason why I appreciated writing Resilient Faith is that it tells the story of pre-Christendom. Mm. And mm. there are some things to learn with how the church functioned in that pre-Christendom environment that I think might have relevance for us today. We'll keep our eyes peeled for that and make folks aware. Thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to Christianity for the Everyday Dispatches from and for our daily lives. And today was with Jerry Sitzer. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you, Jason. Thanks all. You were a delightful conversation partners. Wish you well.